Hello, I'm Stephanie Luo. Welcome to Surface Time Confessions of a Diving Junkie, where I chinwag with people who are like me, scuba diver and chronic addicts to being underwater. During the Surface Time today, I spoke with Carrie Miller, storyteller, author, traveler. You may recognize her name from the previous episode with her and her husband, Chris Taylor, sharing their stories behind the book, A Diver's Guide to the World. By the way, I was particularly delighted to find that my birth country, Taiwan, was Kanding National Park as one of the 50 destinations in the book. Anywho, Carrie is back to be part of the Women's Who Scuba series. This time, we chatted more on her journey of becoming a writer for National Geographic her experiences of solo traveling and how those life experiences have shaped her as a person and as a woman. Thanks for agreeing to come back and then chat with me this time for this special series, Women's First Gibber. Of course. Happy to. So I'm still going to kick off with my classic opening question. Where was your last memorable dive since your book? Let's see. Okay. So the last memorable, di- well, all dives are memorable in their own particular way, but Chris and I recently moved up to Byron Bay, Australia. Chris used to live here. It's always been his yeah. happy place. And in Byron Bay, there is a hunk of rock about 10 minutes boat ride off of the coast called Julian Rocks. And it is probably one of the best dive sites in the world, but people, even in people in Australia, don't really know about it because it's just not as famous as the Great Barrier Reefs, and it's just this little hunk of rock off the coastline. But everything that's traveling up and down the East Australian Current stops in for a visit here, and it changes seasonally. And it's been a marine park since the 80s. So there is a ton of marine life, big schools of fish, swim-throughs, rocky outcrops. And this time of year, which is winter here in Australia, we get gray nurse sharks coming in and schooling. So this particular dive was about two weeks ago with Chris, and we saw about 25 gray nurse shark. And if you just get low and sit still out of their line, they're just cruising along. And if you get low and stay out of their pathway, they'll come within six inches of you and just completely cruisy. There's always, you know, 50, 60, 70 wabagong sharks carpeting the floor. We heard humpback whales singing underwater because they're migrating right now. We saw a big loggerhead turtle stuffed under a rock who is sleeping. And that is any given dive at Julian Rocks. You just never really know what you're going to see or what you're going to hear. And we dive every week and just, I've just absolutely fallen in love with the place. Oh my God. I, I'm getting goosebumps. <laughs> you have to come visit. <laughs> not, not only are you counting the species, you're actually giving me the numbers that, oh, usually 50, 60 crawling on the seabed. So winter must be quite cold there, right? The water temperature is around, probably around 20 degrees Celsius right now. I think it'll get down to probably about 16 or 17 in October, probably is when it's the coldest. And then when it's, when it's summertime here, then it's, you're down to a three mil easily. So it's not too terribly cold. It's fine. Okay, so you're doing dry suit or you just no, have a I, very thick? I have about a, I have a seven millimeter semi-dry that I use. And that's, I'm toasty as in that. 
okay, I'll definitely give it a try because you really got my heart going. And especially as a place that not as famous as Great Barrier Reef, which is yes. perfect. And uh, in the summertime, you get leopard sharks and manta rays that come in. Um, so the gray nurse depart and the humpbacks stop migrating, but then you get leopard sharks and manta rays coming in instead. So it really is a spectacular place. Uh, and it's a chapter in our book, A Diver's Guide to the World, as well. Okay. So how's the book going? Yeah, book is going really well, thanks. The great thing is getting all the feedback from people who have read it, who have said that there's destinations in there that they didn't expect that they're using it to plan their next trip, that this is something that really resonates with them. We're getting divers saying that they're looking to do more land-based activities. We're getting a lot of people who have non-diving or diving companions say this is the perfect book for them. And people are also really responding to, as we discussed about in our last interview, every chapter contains information about how you can make a difference either at home or as a traveler or how you can be a better ambassador for the ocean and a better steward of the planet, how you can get involved either hands-on or learning more. And uh, we're getting a lot of positive responses to that of people saying they had no idea and they're looking to travel a bit differently, which is fantastic. You really are making an impact. And then to get those feedback is incredible. The, the feedback is wonderful. We love hearing from people and we love hearing from people who tell us something different about a destination that we didn't include. That's always one of the biggest things for me as a writer is I don't want to write the joy of discovery out of a place. I don't want to write it so detailed that it's if you swim here and turn right at this rock, you'll see an octopus. I want people to get an overview and a sense of the place and provide them with some really good ideas and information and then let them go and explore and discover for themselves. And I love it when people come back and say, I noticed you didn't write about this cafe or I got to dive this dive site and you didn't mention that in your book. And it, this was fantastic because it just is, it's such a joy to hear and it, it gets us all fired up to get back and go traveling again. Oh, and that's nice. You being the writer, you're also uh, a very good storyteller. Not disclosing so many stories in that book must require lots of question for yourself it was because the chapters of it they have to have a certain kind of size and shape and form in order to fit a book concept like that and so there were very strict word counts on what i could do and i found that very difficult and very constraining but at the same time it made me a much better writer my storytelling skills and my writing skills jumped uh, by a huge amount writing this book because I had to get very good at editing and become quite ruthless with myself. And so I've definitely noticed a step up in my game since writing this book. And it's one of the few things that I've written where I look back on it and say, you know what, actually, this isn't too bad. I'm my harshest critic. So usually when I read something, I think about all the things I could do better. But with this one, I think actually there's some pretty good stuff in there. So book is one thing, but I personally, when I read it, and I even talking to you, hearing what you're describing your experiences, I still want to hear some BTS stories. Yes. Do you have one or two stories that from your experience of producing this book, yeah, that's your production, but there's other stuff that actually would be nice for people to hear about it. Ooh, that's the thing is that those kind of stories come back to you at the strangest times and in the strangest ways. There's a couple of things that stand out. One was from Frigate Island in the Seychelles. So Frigate Island is a private island. It's probably beyond most people's. It's a very wealthy resort. 
but they used that money to basically rewild the island. So originally there was a population of about 30 Aldabra giant tortoises on there, and now they've got over 3,000. So it's the second largest population of giant Aldabra tortoises outside of the Galapagos. And because of that, all these things are interconnected, like parts of an engine. And so because of that, the birds have returned and the, they've got really unique endemic insect life that's flourishing. And so the, the, the island is basically coming to life. And this is going on behind the scenes. So in the foreground, it's this very luxurious resort where guests are taken care of and they've got a private butler and they can go into the garden and select what it is that they want for dinner and all that sort of things. And behind the scenes, you've got all these rangers and naturalists who are working so hard to bring the island back to life. And they're doing things like coral gardening. And we spent some time with them locating baby tortoises that were just hatched so they can be brought up to the nursery until they're large enough to be safely released back onto the island so that they're not poached by land crabs and birds and other things. And it was just such a unique experience going about kind of the, the flip side of the island and looking at all these amazing things that are, that are happening and what we can do if we actually give nature a chance to heal itself and give it a little bit of a helping hand, it can rebound. And that really filled us with hope. And it also was nice to see travel being used well as a, as a really good way of, of funding it back, you know, of, of using it as a way to, to take care of this particular place. So that was one thing is that I was remembering all those tortoises and, and all those extraordinary tortoises wandering around. And I feel bereft of tortoise in my daily life. I want to see them wandering <laughs> around in my front lawn. <laughs> and then there was other things, like little moments like in Croatia. Chris was doing some deeper diving. And the day before we departed, which is, of course, the no-deco day, he woke up with a very swollen elbow. And we were wondering if, if this was signs of um, DCS or if something else was going on. And so we called up the Divers Alert Network and got some advice from them. And they said, look, just probably not, but just to be on the safe side, we recommend you seeking some medical attention. And so we went to a hospital in Havar. And basically, there's just what hospital care is like in a different country that you're not used to. They gave Chris a little slip of paper. We went into a, a building that looked like, like very much like a school with a central hallway and doors going off of it. But there's no names on the doors. There's no information about where to go next. So we, we found a bench in the hallway and just sat there. And then we saw other people walk in with pieces of paper and they just started knocking on doors and then a door, a door would open and they'd go in. So we started doing the same. And basically you just go around and knock on doors. And when a doctor is free, they'll open it and and then see you. Then you go out with your $30 bill and pay it. And that's your hospital visit. It was just that extraordinary. <laughs> really surreal, actually. The interesting healthcare system. They sell, sell, go and knock on the door, say, are you free to see me? <laughs> no, I know. it's it, Nothing is quite so illuminating as getting sick in another country. <laughs> and it turned out it was fine. He just he just had bursitis on his elbow because he knocked it somewhere when we were getting off on and off of a plane and he didn't really recall. So it turned out to be nothing, but it's always good to check. Yeah, I think it's diving definitely is not something you can take it lightly. And yes. and actually I want to ask you, because you briefly mentioned to me before about your traumatic scuba diving learning experience. And yes. and I think it's quite important to share that with people and, and not to deter them from scuba diving actually is to encourage more people to want to learn scuba diving, but to be a bit more selective, more conscious about the choices you're going to make 
So yeah, what happened? Okay, so the first time I tried to learn how to scuba dive, I couldn't get past the mask clearing. And so I was very upset about that because everybody around me was getting it, no problem. And I could not get past the mask clearing. And so I aborted that particular dive course. I spoke to the instructors at the shop. They gave me some advice about trying to fill my mask half full with water and just doing laps in a pool to get used to the feeling of the water sloshing around my nose. And so I thought, okay, that I can do. So I went and I practiced and it wasn't a problem. And so then I decided to try the dive course again. This time I sailed through the skill section with absolutely no problem. The mask clearing wasn't a problem. Um, all the rest of the skills went fine and I felt really confident. Then it came time for the open water portion of the course, which was held at a high altitude lake in New Zealand in the middle of winter in gale force winds and zero visibility. And it was very cold. And I should have listened to my gut instinct and said, nah, this isn't the day. This isn't the time. Come back again. Do it another time. However, I've already aborted one dive course. And I also put a lot of faith in my instructors who are making the call to go ahead and run the dive course because that what they wanted to do was get the one dive in on the Saturday so that we could do three dives on the Sunday when the weather was looking better. And I didn't understand about how dive courses ran and how the system worked. And I also didn't know that divers who have more experience tend to forget how difficult it can be for new divers just starting out. And that's something that I am hyper aware of now. And so when, for example, we're locals at Byron Bay at the Sun Dive Shop, we're there every Sunday kidding up. And if there's people who are new divers, I try to pay attention to them and speak to them and make them feel included and make them feel welcome. And if they're nervous, listen to them. Don't just brush them aside saying, you're going to be fine. Because they might not be fine. They might have some real concerns. I don't know their skill level. I don't know what their comfort level is. But just listen to them and, and just remember that some people, it takes a while for them to feel comfortable in a diving environment. So the long story short is I should have pulled the pin and said, this isn't the right day to learn. I had a bad feeling about it, but I trusted that it would be fine and went ahead and so many things went wrong. It was just one of those kind of comedy of errors where somebody panicked and swam off. I lost my dog buddy or my dog buddy left me. My mass fogged up. I lost a fin. <laughs> so my tolerance for things going wrong was getting narrower and narrower. And I remember my field of vision was actually getting narrower and narrower. And I do remember going to the instructor and saying, no, I wanted to abort the dive. And he conveyed to me that we basically just had five more minutes and to basically try to stick it out. And yeah, long story short, it just did not go well. And I decided at that point that I was not going to do the following day's dives because I was so scared and felt so overwhelmed. And more happened in that dive, but I don't really want to get into the gruesome details because I don't want to deter anybody from diving. But basically, I got spooked very badly. And so then I had a really hard time of it because I really wanted to give it a try. And I love the ocean. And I was finding that even snorkeling was sending me into a bit of a panic. And it took a lot of time and patience and 
to just keep going. So for a couple of years where I was just basically snorkeling. And then one time Chris and I were traveling to Fiji and I met a dive instructor there that I really liked, the Fijian man named Leroy. And he was the first person who didn't tell me that it was all in my head and I just needed to relax. And what he did was he took me, just held my hand and took me around a coral reef in I think it was probably about five meters of water. It wasn't deep at all. I think when we first started out, it was maybe two or three meters of water. And he made me feel comfortable and confident. And so when I decided that I wanted to try again, we went to Fiji so that I could learn with Leroy. And I sailed through my course. And we went to Fiji, not only because of Leroy, but because warm, clear water, but it was a post-cyclone. So it was very bad visibility. <laughs> the water was all turned up. And I'm doing my mask removal with my eyes screwed shut and Leroy is holding me by the BCD so that I wouldn't fly off in the current and I've got debris hitting me in the face and I was fine. So the thing that I would encourage people to take away from this is not everybody gets it in a weekend. And if you don't get it in a weekend, that doesn't mean that diving's not for you. It just means you might need some more one-on-one -on -one instruction. You might need to try different things like a couple of DSDs where you have that one-on-one -on -one attention or maybe get an instructor to work with you in a pool setting until you start to get comfortable. And then the other thing is to trust your gut. Now, if I don't feel comfortable on a dive, I'll pull a bin on it. That's fine. There's no problem with that or I won't go. I think I have a lot more confidence in my own ability now in that it's not just my diving capabilities, but my own ability to read situations. But thanks for sharing that because I'm sure it's pretty really traumatic. What I find interesting is how you process traumatic experience. Say so you were going through a traumatic experience, but then you will have different kind of people responding to that. And then most of the time, they tend to come from this place of sympathy. And so they will try to tell you that, oh, it's all in your head and then you just need to get over it. You just need to do the breathing, what have you. But then you have other people who give you a more empathetic approach and working with you so that you feel that you have a partner. And so I think what Leroy did for you was beautiful. And you're right. If you have any struggle with this kind of scuba diving, don't give up. Find another instructor who is able to work with you on a one-on-one -on -one basis because it really is different. And not all instructors work well with people comes with the issue like waterphobia. I think that when you approach a standard diving course, they don't talk to you about what other options you have if you're not getting it straight away and you're watching all your classmates get it and you're the person who's not. It's not talked about that you can pull aside and do something different or approach it a bit differently or come back to it. And I think that is doing a real disservice to people who don't fit that standard format of learning to dive. So. If you're struggling at all, realize that there are a thousand different ways to approach it. Look, keep knocking on doors until somebody answers. And yeah, keep looking for different professionals to help you out. And don't give up because my life would be so much more diminished if I wasn't diving. So uh, it's opened up a whole new world to me. And so I will encourage anybody to give it a try. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, I see it because being a scuba diving myself and also being an instructor on the other end. And also I opt not to teach in the commercial sense. So I mm. only teach one-on-one -on -one private small group because I cannot predict and control what will happen to the student. 
when they leave my course. But all I could do is to prep them to be ready to deal with, say, current. So I say, you hit current. Think about current. What does that mean? And it's just to get people to process it. And speaking of traveling, you write that geo. So it's one of the things that I'm always fascinated by. It is growing up, one of the many travel books I go to. So how did you get into it in the first place? If, if there is one thing I could put on my tombstone, it would be tenacity. That basically sums up my life. And it's gotten me into a lot of problems. And it's, it's also scored me a lot of wonderful opportunities. It, it, it doesn't make for an easy and relaxed life, but I go after what I want. And all I wanted to do since I was about nine years old is write for National Geographic. I wrote to one of the editors when I was at university, and it was a really good letter. And I got his attention and he basically said, look, we don't usually do this, but I've gotten you an interview on this time at this date with this person in Washington, D.C. I was living in Minnesota at the time. At the time, National Geographic, the, the offices take up half a city block. And at the time when the door was open for me, they had six or seven permanent, basically tennis that would be farmed out to different places in the society to help out at any given time. It was cheaper to have those people on staff and train them up than it was to bring in external agency help. So they're basically interns. Um, and so he said he had gotten me an interview for that internship program, and then the rest was up to me. And and so I went down for the interview and got lost on my way to <laughs> National Geographic, got there on time, and got the job. And that's how I started. So I worked at their headquarters for about seven years. And then realized that I wanted one of the roving writing jobs. And at that point, I picked up and moved to the Southern Hemisphere and been writing for them ever since. Oh, wow. What was your first assignment as a, for them, for the travel? The, my first assignment was actually a self-assignment. <laughs> I assigned it to myself. Because I was getting small writing opportunities, but I'm early 20s. So they, they don't hand out the assignments to, to the early 20-year-olds. But I wanted to write a story. And so I self-tasked myself with writing a story about New Zealand and wrote the story. And it ended up being on the cover of National Geographic Travel. So it worked pretty well. Really? Talking about tenacity down to the teeth. <laughs> Oh, if only you could be inside my head. It works so well sometimes. And then sometimes it just, oh, it causes so much chaos. <laughs> Look, the, the moral of the story, I think, is, is that I found out at, a, at an early age that if I go for what I want and don't get it or fall flat on my face or embarrass myself, it's a, it's a, it's a fleeting feeling of failure. And then you dust yourself up off and you're on to the next thing. And sometimes you actually get what you're going after and that's worth everything. To me, it's worth it to take the chances because I did learn pretty early on that, that nothing bad too much happens if I don't achieve what I set out for. Yeah. If I embarrass myself or fall flat on the face, it doesn't hurt too badly. Pick yourself up, dust off, move on to what's next. Mm -hmm. So what was that like being a solo female traveler? With that, with that story, I actually did it with my sister. We were going and I decided to make, an, make a story out of it. But most of my assignments for National Geographic and other publications after that were solo, where I would either go to a place on my own or I would be linking up with different people, for example, different experts or photographers 
in the field, but you're still pretty much on your own. And I think solo travel is hugely important for for helping form who I was and creating that sense of independence. And yeah, uh, just knowing how I like to spend my time, I think it served me really well. And it can be a bit scary isn't the right word. You can find yourself in some positions where you're conscious of the fact that you're, you're on your own. But for me, the biggest hardship was always just trying to navigate airport bathrooms when you've got your luggage because you don't have anyone to wash your luggage for you. <laughs> that was always the biggest annoyance. That's the best joy of traveling with other people. <laughs> Watch this stuff. I'll be right back. I think solo traveling comes with being alone. In a way, it's good when you're being alone that you get more time to reflect. I would actually swap the word alone with solitude because very often the word alone very easily lead to the next word lonely. What does that mean to you when you're in solitude or in your solo travel mode? Yeah, I think the loneliest position actually is being feeling lonely when you're in a relationship or when you're in a group setting. That's the loneliest position of all. I've never felt lonely when I've been on my own. Sometimes you might feel a little bit isolated or you might feel there might be other feelings that come through, but I've never felt lonely being alone. I think it's hugely important to yourself as a person to be comfortable with your own thoughts and feelings and knowing how you like to spend your time. What are your natural rhythms? What do you gravitate to? What are you curious about? Because of that, that'll help you shape a life that is very uniquely yours, that you feel comfortable in, that you feel comfortable in your own skin. I was pretty much single up until the age of 38 when I met Chris. I think I'd had one year-long relationship, but most of the time I was on my own. And I went through different periods of being okay with that and not being okay with that. You, you do question and say, is something wrong with me? Because that's usually what you consider. <laughs> but when I met Chris, I was a really independent person. And Chris was the same. He was a very independent person. And we found out that we love spending time together. He makes going to the grocery store more fun. We just really enjoy each other's company. But I can also be off doing my own thing and he can be off doing his own thing. I think the reason that we got on so well together is because we're both very sure of who we were when we picked each other. And I'm very grateful for that because I think that my life could have ended up very differently if I had chosen somebody differently early on, simply because I think I needed a lot of sorting out. So I needed to find out who I was and what I wanted and what I wanted to do. I think it's harder to meet people if you're in a group. You can meet people as a group. You can meet people as a couple. But if you're on your own, you meet people. You can take a turn down a street that you want to go look at. You can go spend time in a museum or a gallery and just be there and be in the moment and be present. And I think it's really important for women, especially, to have that sense of self and to have that sense of I'm capable. I have a lot of value. And I'm okay with who I am as I am. And I think it helps you construct, yeah, the life that you want to lead. That's so beautifully put. Again, I'm getting goosebumps. I really am. And it's, it's out of the sense I can resonate so deeply with what you just shared. I actually say to myself the other day, and I say to my friend as well, this is the best time to be women. Like, like have a multiple reincarnation in different shape and forms. 
I think I've chosen to be a woman in this lifetime and it's the best choice because it's the, the best time to be women. And I think it's very important for women to regain that self-confidence, that self-belief. Somehow traveling opens up your minds, right? And it's in that space that things happen to you. You need space to create. As a writer, if you're constantly under deadline, you have to teach yourself to create, but it's harder to create. Whereas if you are, are able to have some space, that's when the good stuff comes in. And that's, it's important to create that space. And I think that's the same if you're just, if you're traveling and experiencing new things, but you're not constrained by other people, you're on your own and, and you have that space to follow your own rhythms, get up where you want, go to bed what you want. How do you like to spend your time? What do you like to do? What do you seek out? All that is really important information. And meanwhile, you're building that confidence. And while I agree with you, this is a wonderful time for women to be alive. I still think that women need to gift themselves that confidence. They need to go looking for it if they don't feel that they have it, that independence and solo traveling is a great way to do that. And I was very fortunate growing up where I had parents who instilled in me the belief that I could do what I could do whatever I wanted, basically. And they were always there. And there was always the, well, be safe, be careful. But they let me have that freedom to try spreading my wings. And I knew that they were there if I needed them. But back when I was doing solo traveling, this wasn't the era of mobile phones. So it was a good old-fashioned foldable maps and good old-fashioned landlines and pay phones. And it was basically no news is good news. If you don't hear from me, assume that I'm fine. <laughs> because that was the only way to do it. It was letters and postcards and, and the occasional phone call, basically. But there wasn't email and there wasn't mobile phones. And so it really was just out and about on my own. Time has changed now because then they are still solo traveling, but the travel was their IG account, TikTok. Mm -hmm. And you, obviously, having worked with National Geographic and you, you've seen even this magazine, how they have evolved, and this, especially in the last 20 years, when the smartphone comes out, all of a sudden there's massive upsurge. I remember when Instagram first came out, no one cared about it. I signed up because I thought, oh, that's quite interesting. I can play along with my photo. But then it evolved into social media. What? Have you seen and what impact do you see that has happened in the travel writing? Mm, that's an excellent question. I was just flashing back while you were talking to the, the, the how National Geographic almost imploded over the whole film versus digital <laughs> transition. Um, yeah, there are a lot of there. Oh, boy, that was a hard time. But going back to social media. So I was very late to the social media game. I only came on board, I think, 2016 or 2017. And that was only because I had to for my professional career. I'm still a bit reluctant with it. Chris and I have a lot of discussions about it because he is acutely aware of the positive side of things, which is, for example, the connectivity, the inspiration, and especially giving people who have not had a platform before a platform that they can use. So marginalized groups who haven't had the same opportunities to reach people, to make themselves heard, to create, this gives them a lot more of an opportunity. And that's wonderful. So there are a lot of wonderful things about it. The downsides of it, of course, are the misinformation, the fact that there's no gatekeeper, there's no fact-checking, there's all of that kind of stuff, which we're all aware of it. For me, the biggest thing that is a concern for me is, is that 
is, is when you're traveling, is having social media take you out of the moment. Because if, and I'm not saying people who have to do this for their career, that's something completely different. But if you're just traveling and you're on holiday and you're thinking about a photo that you might post and a pose that might look good or a scenario that might look good and you're cultivating that and you're thinking about how, so your whole experience in the moment becomes about this thing that's going to happen down the line and how people might respond to it as opposed to just actually being in the moment. And that I see all the time. And that is a concern to me. And it's not just Instagram and posting. It's also about people having their phones in their hands all the time. And addiction is a very strong word, but it becomes a dependency. It becomes a habit. And I think that it's incumbent upon all of us to check in and make sure that we're on top of our habits. So for example, if I notice myself picking up my phone, like if I'm in a cab from the airport to my hotel in a new destination, I want to be present and looking out the window and, and, and taking it all in and asking the driver questions and thinking about things like that. If I find that my first reaction is to pull my phone out of my pocket and start scrolling, start answering emails, post something or whatever, then I'm not in the moment. I'm missing this whole experience. I'm missing all of it. And I'm never going to get that back again. Or if I'm at home and Chris and I are watching a movie and he gets up to go make us a cup of tea. If I find that my first reaction is to pick up my phone and fill those two minutes, I usually put myself on a digital detox for a little while where I am conscious about leaving my phone in the other room. I don't post so that I break the habit of it being my go-to thing if I'm bored, if I have a moment of downtime so that I'm not grabbing for it. And I find that usually if I do that for a week or so, it cuts that cord, it cuts that habit. And I do it regularly. I don't have any particular set times. I just notice that if I'm doing it, I'll check in and make sure that I'm not becoming reliant on it to fill time or to fill those particular moments. And so people who follow me on Instagram, and I'm going to do a shameless plug here, it's either at Beneath the Surface Media for me and Chris or at Carrie Miller underscore writer for me. You'll notice that I'll go through breaks and posting. I'll just be gone for a while. And that's because I'm usually doing a bit of a digital detox. So yeah, that makes sense. And that also means that you have a very high self-awareness when you realize that you're doing something which is actually contributing to a, this concept of wasting time. And then the time that you, you get wasted, you'll never get it back. So yeah, it does require a little bit of like self-discipline checking. We can carry on forever and uh, <laughs> I'd love to do that. But probably it's better save it for a time where I could actually reach in person and go diving in Barron Bay because what you just described to me really made the impression in my head now. <laughs> please, please come visit. We'd love to take you out diving. Yeah, I would love to go. Okay, so I'm going to ask you the, the five questions that I always ask everybody. The okay. first one is what are your three top tips on safe diving practice? Trust yourself. So trust your own feelings, trust your own instincts, trust your own skills. And if you're uncertain about your skills, make sure you go and, and learn more, learn what you need to learn, get some instruction to shore up any areas that you feel you're not particularly strong in. Do the basics right. So pre-buddy, your pre-dive checks with your buddy, things like keeping your regulator in your mouth as you're getting out of, as you're climbing out of, uh, onto a boat, all those little details are so good at mitigating risk and helping for a more safe and enjoyable dive. 
And then lastly, be present. If you're a new diver, leave the camera behind. Don't worry about it. Just enjoy being on the dive and being in the moment. And really just, we're very privileged to be able to dive. So being present not only helps you enjoy that, but it helps you identify any sort of unsafe situations a lot more quickly than you would if you were preoccupied doing something else. <laughs> okay. The next question, outside scuba diving, what do you do to maintain your own well-being? I like to exercise. Uh, I think exercising is really important. For me, it's really important to help focus my mind. So I like to exercise in the morning because then I find I can keep my body still so that I can write more. If my body is tired out, my mind tends to sharpen and focus. But for an activity like basically anything that we're asking our body to do, it's good to keep it in, in, in good shape. So I love boxing, do some weight training, love walking and hiking. And then I try to stretch and go to yoga because that's also important. But that's always harder. It's harder for me than the hard exercise. Um, make sure you look after yourself as far as have a team in place for a massage therapist or a physio and take care of your body because we, it, we, we, we take it for granted until something goes awry with it and then we're hyper aware of, of what's wrong. So it's important to keep it running in tip-top condition. Yeah. Next question. What advice would you give, you, give your 18-year-old self? This kind of goes hand in hand with the tenacity. So the tenacity, I think, is a really good thing. Don't ever give up. But the bad thing is that I can be very intense and anxious and overthink things a lot. And I would go back and tell myself not to worry so much that things have a habit of working out. I would have tried to encourage my 18-year-old self, 18 self to be a bit more present and a bit more less worried about how things might unfold and just go with the flow. Like water. Be with the water, like water. Go with the flow. Like water. Exactly. Next question. What is one life-changing experience that you can think now? This kind of taps back into your earlier question about what do you do to maintain your own well-being. One, of, one trip that I went on was up to northern Mongolia along the Russian border. And it was, was riding horses every day, camping every night. And we were traveling with the nomadic reindeer herders that live up there. And it was a hard trip. I didn't see any permanent man-made objects for a month, no showers for a month, no running water, no toilets, no, you're just, you're, and no help coming to get you. If, any, if you get kicked by a horse or anything happens, you're on your own. And I just thrived, loved it, loved every minute of it. It was really hard. It was thrilling. It was adventurous. And after that trip, and I think what was, I would probably been late 20s. So after that, I cut my body some slack because it held up so well and did everything I asked it to. And it dealt with conditions and I did get kicked by a horse and camping and all the rest of it. And it doesn't matter if I'm five kg heavier or if I wish my body looked like this or that because it just you know, it kicked ass out there. It did everything I asked it to and more. And it really looked after me. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to stop wishing it looked different than it does. And that was an incredibly freeing experience. Wow. 
that's actually quite incredible discovery. Because then we are very conscious about how our body looks and feels, and we spend more time focusing on how you should look rather than how you should feel. When you look at other people, do you sit there and judge them? Do you think, oh, she would be prettier if she was taller, or if she was about ten kg lighter, or if her hair was curlier? No, you look at people and you think. Damn, she's beautiful. Look at the outfit she's wearing. She's got such a credible sense of style, or what a beautiful smile she's got. Her man, her eyes are amazing, and that's how other people look at us. But when we look at ourselves, we are so so harsh, and we sit there and think, "Oh, if only I was a little bit thinner, or if I was a little bit stronger, or whatever." We're so hard on ourselves, and I've tried to look at it like how I look at other people, and I'm not always successful. There, are, there are certainly days where、right. I'm just I'm I can be really hard <laughs> on myself, but. In my line of work, I've had to put my body through an awful lot. Where I take it on assignment, and I'm kayaking or diving or horseback riding or in a riot or this, that, or the other, and I rely on it quite a lot. And it's done really well. And I feel like I should cut myself some slack and just be appreciative of it rather than hypercritical of it all the time. So I'm very conscious of trying to do that. I look at other people everywhere around the world, and and people are beautiful. They're absolutely beautiful, and they come in in all shapes and sizes. What a bore it would be if everybody looked exactly the same. How awful that would be! I love that. That is just such a nice way of articulating that how we should talk to ourselves differently. And like you say, cut yourself slack, which we don't do enough, especially women, to be honest. Oh, for sure, absolutely. I actually had a yoga teacher once yell at me because, which it's a yoga teacher. They don't tend to yell. But I had shoulder surgery on my right shoulder,、um, and so when I went into a yoga class, and she said, "Is there anything that I need to know?" and I said, "I've got a bad right shoulder." She said, "How dare you talk about your shoulder that way? It's not bad. It's probably stronger than your other shoulder. It had to overcome a lot of trauma. It's come back. It's still working fine. It's got some scars, but it's okay. Don't talk about it as if it's bad. Talk about it as if it's strong. Those little..." The little stories we tell ourselves—they actually take root, and I took that as a very significant life lesson, and I've tried to think of it ever since then. Is that my right shoulder, the one who went through the surgery, is probably stronger than my left shoulder because it saw some trauma and recovered. Yeah, it does, and it's lovely that your yoga teacher shared that perspective, and also it was helping you to reprogram how you talk to yourself. So I think one of the things that we don't do enough, men, women. We're not wired to feel our body and communicate with our body as if it's another being. It's a bad mix, though. It does absolutely, and it's how we travel. It's our vehicle for traveling through the world. So it's important to take care of it and be checked in with it and be aware of it and not be so hypercritical of it. Just if it's getting us through our days and and doing its best, then stop being so hard on it. Last question. And、um, what are you most passionate about right now? This doesn't tend to change too much. I'm most passionate about my family and friends. I think the tribe that you create for yourself is is so important. I'm so grateful for the people that I have in my life. Writing and storytelling is hugely important to me. That includes my own writing. That includes my books. That includes just all the things that I I, I do as far as creation. It's such. It's it is who I am. So that's very important to me and, and very much a passion. And trying to look after this planet of ours. That's everything from trying to leave it a little bit better than you found it by making positive 
There's so many different ways to do it, not just from an environmental and conservation point of view, but also helping people in communities or helping individuals. But I just think that I, I constantly see all these examples of what we can do when we try to have a positive impact. And we're so close to transforming this world into something that is really something that could be shared and enjoyed and, and preserved for everybody. And, and we just keep getting in our own way. But all those individual efforts matter. And that's something that I'm very passionate about. It's just trying to do what good we can with the time that we've got on this planet. So where does your tenacity tell you to go next? Oh boy, so many places. Chris and I are currently taking our Beneath the Surface Media project and we're working on the next incarnation of that. Not ready to talk about it yet, but we will let you know when there's something to share. And I've also started writing a novel. So oh, we'll see. <laughs> well, I have lots of ideas, but I have one idea that's bang been banging around in my head for while I was trying to write her dive travel guidebook and I kept having to push it to the side because it wasn't time for it yet. You have been listening to Surface Time, Confessions of a Diving Junkie. My guest today was Carrie Miller. She is definitely the living expression of tenacity. Being a gifted storyteller, she generously shared her stories and stories of people, places and culture that she encountered. In essence, Stories are expressions of different life experiences. So through her words, we get to experience this vicariously. Also, we may resonate with the stories and even identify the similarities and differences when comparing to our own. In that process, this is when inspirations, imaginations, and new perspectives happen. And often we would refine our life narrative as a result. So think of a time when something happened, whether it's reading a quote from a book, a movie, or an instant, anything. This something may be small and yet so significant that it changed your perceptions about life. What is your story there? What details would you like to share with your audience? And why is that? If you have enjoyed our Surface Time chat, Please show us some love and subscribe and even better share with your friends and family so that they get inspired. And if you would like to share your own stories on surface time or your comments and feedback, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us on Instagram at service time chat or email us faith at surface time chat.com. Surface time executively produced by Noitic Production and music by Dress studio.